0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
1: this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. For today's show about team sports and what they can teach us all about building excellent, successful teams in business. Our phones are open and we're taking calls at 844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866. Have you played team sports and what did they teach you that helps you succeed in day-to-day life. We'd really love to know. That's 1-844-WARTON, 844-942-7866. And give us a ring. We want to know, were you on a team? Was it a solo sport? Was it a team sport? What did it develop in you? How did it challenge you? Um, And how do you bring what you learned then into the way you work with other people? Um, Because today we're talking all about team dynamics. And we're going to be doing that with two of the three authors of the newly released book, Powerhouse, 13 Teamwork Tactics that Build Excellence and Unrivaled Success with Christine Lilly and Lynette Gillis. Christine is an expert on effective teamwork who consults with organizations on the lessons she gleaned from her remarkable career as a professional athlete. Christine played midfielder for the United States Women's National Soccer Team for over 23 years. This included five FIFA World Cups and three Olympic Games. She was inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame in 2012 and the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame in 2014. Lynette Gillis earned her Ph.D. at the University of Texas in corporate strategy and organizational behavior, completing a dissertation on networks and teams. As a professor at Concordia University, she taught strategy, leadership, management, and ethics. She also served as dean of the College of Business before inhabiting her current role as the associate provost. Their other co-author happens to be Lynette's husband, John, who did his doctoral work at that excellent school called the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. The book shares insights into how high-performing teams work together on and off the field to help you succeed. And I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome them to the program today. Christine, Lynette, welcome to Women at Work. Hi there. Thanks for having us. Hi. Hi, Hi, thanks. So that was Christine first and then Lynette, right? Yes. Terrific. So, Christine, let's start with you. Tell us how you went from being on the field to becoming a consultant and an author. And where Lynette and John came into the picture. Okay, well, I think what's
2: exciting about this book um, is because we did it uh, as a team, uh, the three of us. So that's uh, really what is so great about it. And and it all started, with, We with I moved to Austin, Texas to coach, uh, be an assistant coach at the University of Texas. And I met John Lynette through our my daughter and their daughter. They were in kindergarten together and they met on the monkey bars. <laughs> <laughs> Simple place to meet, right? And then, um, and then they asked uh, if they did, uh, my daughter wanted to join their soccer team. And then John and I became the coaches. And then they have a better story behind it because they didn't realize who I was and that I was—I told my coach soccer, but they know that I had the history of the soccer that I did. And, and we met, and immediately became great friends. And then talked about the success of the U.S. team. Talked about, you know, how the business world doesn't use the team concept enough and i was like oh my gosh how could you not when you have so many people so many great people around you that can help you be successful so that's
1: kind of how this all got to play
2: uh with those two
1: so it sounds like the first place where you guys started to become a team was actually in coaching soccer with john yes and
2: and you know what the game of soccer has given me so many wonderful things i mean olympics world cup and all that but it's brought me together with so many great people from different businesses I've worked with to people like John and Lynette um, that has been so, it's so great. And I'm so fortunate and blessed that this game has given me so much.
1: It clearly has, and now it's giving it to all of us. So that's extra exciting. (laughs) Before we dive in to um, how Lynette came into sports and how, and all the things you guys have learned and decided to share with us. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask a question though about, so you and John, meet in the playground you're going to coach the soccer team together um i know from just being a parent and volunteering to coach it's always kind of fraught you got to like figure out the team dynamic and how to get on equal footing how did you Uh guys figure it out well
2: it was kind of um easy in a sense john's personality is very boisterous and fun and outgoing and he connects with the kids like oh my gosh did this and then i'm i'm fun too i'd like to say but i've also (laughs) i was also the soccer side he was more of the the tactics and you know let's get them warmed up and all that stuff so we immediately fell into the roles and he 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 created some corner kick plays and i was more about teaching him how to kick the ball so we easily just found our our ways and respected each other's strengths um, which is so important when you're working with others and uh and fit
1: together great and uh it,
2: it was really a fun two years of coaching
1: um, our kids and building a great relationship so Lynette how was sports new to you had you been athletic before uh, no I really
0: wasn't and um, I never grew up playing soccer and wasn't really familiar with the game so um, as Christine mentioned when I first met her I immediately didn't know who she was necessarily when she said oh well I coached soccer and she was coaching at UT at the University of Texas at the time And um, I thought, well, that's great, and wanted to kind of hear more about it because my girls were starting to play soccer, but it wasn't a sport that I grew up in. And in fact, in the town I grew up in, there just weren't a lot of um, sports teams available for girls. There was dance classes, Mm -hmm. gymnastics classes, but not necessarily a sports team. Um, And I think that is partly the generation I grew up in, and now we see so much more of that um, available to my own girls and our kids. And it's so much in part due to this 99 uh, World Cup team that when I learned more about Christine and a friend of mine said, you need to look her up because um, she knew a little more about <laughs> soccer than I did, and I was blown away, um, blown away by um, her accomplishments. Um, you know, She was the youngest and the oldest woman to play on the U.S. national team. She has more international appearances than any uh, male or female soccer player um, in the world, in fact. And um, that does that's not to mention all of her um, Olympic championships and World Cup championships. So um, I was blown away by um, the caliber of athlete that she was, but also by the quality of person that she was.
1: And I also um, want to shine a light on something that you mentioned that because I think I grew up similarly. There was dance class. Um, you, I, we could play tennis. You could maybe swim at the Y. <laughs> but there wasn't organized team sports for girls like Little League or soccer. Um, and the women's national soccer team in many ways became some of the first um, role models that had been part of a team that had had right. such remarkable success. And they were, they're they precious to our daughters for that reason.
0: That's right. You know, you know yeah. well, go, go ahead, Linda, Sorry. Okay. Well, I didn't know Christine immediately. What I did know was the 99 World Cup, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when When I met her. Um, I watched the game. I remember watching the game along with the millions of other people in the United States and around the world, and, you know, you could see their joy, their passion, their athleticism, their mm-hmm. strength, and, you know, through the TV, you could feel the bond they had as a team um, through their victory and um, and throughout the game, and I I believe that was a pivotal moment really in U.S. history. It was the first women's team to really receive the notoriety of men's sports and um, that people were coming out for And these women suddenly became athletic heroes and role models, and I I think it spurred for our culture a new era of girls' sports and girls' um, athleticism that, um, that hadn't been there before. And today, we have more opportunities for our girls than I had when I was growing up. Without
1: a doubt, and they played a critical role in that. Absolutely. One of the things that is also so remarkable about the United States Women's National Soccer Team is that... They have performed as a winning organization longer than any other U.S. sports team in history. Christine, that's correct, right? That we've been playing longer? What was that stat? That you've performed as a winning organization longer than any other single U.S. sports team.
2: Yeah, you know what? That could be true. I think when I look back, I mean, I joined the team in 1987, and the U.S. team started in 1985, so um, it was new, and then I played for 23 years, and in that time span, I mean, we talked about it. I won two World Cups and won um, two gold medals, and then the other times that we competed, we didn't com- we didn't come lower than third place.
1: Yeah. It's a it's a remarkable record. Yeah. And so, so it's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. But one of the <laughs> things I want to talk about, kind of as an entrance to talk about the book and the things that we have to learn from all of you, is to what do you attribute that kind of consistent long-term success?
2: Well, you know, there you got to have the talent. I mean, first off, you have to have the talent and then you have to have the right players. Um, in, on the team you know I mean you can have you can have the talent but then not be good for team chemistry and um, you know have a little cancer on the team so definitely the talents works and then also fitting selecting your teams and in in, in our book we talk about um, we have four pillars that we talk about transform empower achieve and motivate now I'm mm-hmm. using the word team for that and each part you know you're you're building your team through that and the transform part is what I was just speaking about selecting you know the the exceptional teammates that you have and not only we didn't say exceptional workers it was more like people you know (laughs) so you want the right people and then you empower then you give them leadership and give them a foundation that they're able to build upon and then you know then we're then we're going to the work where you achieve you know you weren't you weren't learning how to work together you're communicating you're handling any conflicts that may uh, come about and then the last part is to motivate. You know, you got the chemistry, your, your, your culture, the mentality. How do you keep your team and workers coming back to be better and to keep winning? And we combined, if you look at the U.S. team, we had all those components. Clearly. And we had, them, we had them when we won the big World Cup. We, we probably had them when we came in third or second sometimes, but maybe one was a little not, you know, we weren't functioning all at 100%. You know, so you can definitely have them and have pieces that are, you know, a little lower in some some places where you're not as successful if you're going to define success as being the best. Um, but overall, the success we had was just incredible.
1: It truly was. So, Lynette, one of the things that Christine just mentioned was she said that – it the team was built of people, not workers. That that was about more than just performance on the field during the game is what I'm gathering that to mean. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what that means in our day-to-day business lives. Yeah,
0: so, you know, I I think if you look at the research, the most common complaints about organizations are uh, one, communication, and two, teamwork. And um, I think that those two are intertwined. And, And I think some of the reason is that, you know we have individual performers. You know we, as in organizations, we hire for talent, right? And we hire for positions right? often. We, we're looking at, I need to fill this position. I'm going to look for the most talented person to fill this position. And oftentimes we don't look for fit, and we don't look for um, those people to be a part of our teams who who share in that um, common, common sort of goal, common. And sense of purpose, common sense of ethos about the team. And um, and then our team deteriorates, right? And those performers that we thought were going to um, do great and really build the team up, in fact, don't, right? And we have um, conflict and communication problems because we never came in with the intent to set the right direction and, and have people aligned in terms of purpose. And so I think with in a business situation, as we're hiring, as we're selecting our talent, as we're... Um, building our teams, we really have to think about uh, what is that common purpose that unites the team? How do we build a strong team ethos and sense of culture, sense of purpose and direction? Um, And then build leadership and communication kind of into that. Um, But we have to first recognize it is more than just individual talent. Um, Every one of those players on the U.S. Women's National Team was talented. And certainly there were others who were also very talented, um, but never made the team or never saw the field because they um, they didn't have the same sort of chemistry
1: with the team. Talk to me a little bit about fit. You know, one of the things that sometimes goes off as a bell for me when people talk about fit is it can be a euphemism for hiring people who are just like us. But I sure. love that you phrased it in terms of an alignment of purpose and ethos. Um, so I'd love to know about the principle of how you um, – Build a team to align on those things without losing your diversity and the kind of diversity that makes a team strong. And then, Christine, I'd love to know how this played out on the field for you guys.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. So, um, you know, I think as you read through the book, um, you know, one of the things that you will see and feel and learn from it um, was this common sense of purpose that they had. Mm -hmm. Um, Purpose and goal setting and drive to win – but also purpose to do something greater um, with their lives and with the platform that they had, and we can talk a little bit more about that later.
2: <laughs> but
0: um, you know, but but when you have that right on this on this women's national team, they were diverse, right? They did have um, diverse. They're diverse ethnically. They're diverse in terms of upbringing and backgrounds. Um, cognitively diverse. They're going to think differently. Personalities are diverse. And, and yet, because they had this common purpose, they're able to act united towards um, towards those common goals. And I think in organizations, um, you know, we you often, you'll hear hiring for fit or hiring for mission alignment, those sorts of, um, that sort of language. And that's all really important. Uh, but you also have to hire towards those values. And um, perhaps in organizations, those values help provide, you know, maybe a framework for our purpose. And um, so certainly at mm-hmm. in my institution, um, diversity is And appreciation of of every person and recognition um, of diversity is an important piece. And so as we hire, it actually benefits our team to to hire people who are different than us. That is a part Mm -hmm. of fit in our team rather than the opposite.
1: It's wonderful to... It's wonderful to hear that. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 132. I am your host, Laura Zaro, and my guests today are Christine Lilly and Lynette Gillis, co-authors of a new book called Powerhouse, 13 Teamwork Tactics that Build Excellence and Unrivaled Success. If you played a team sport, give us a call. We'd love to know how that's helped you later in life. Our number is one 844 Wharton. That's 844-942-7866. So Christine, tell me from the player's perspective. What was the experience of becoming a team with all these diverse people on the field? How did you connect with each other?
2: Right. Well, I think that the connection was uh, was soccer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty, uh, that brought us all together. And also the mentality to be the best. Um, We had this winning mentality from the start. And the, the great part is that our, our team, if we use the 99 team, we were also different. Our personalities were different, but we embraced them. We, we embraced the personalities because we knew if we didn't embrace them and try to change them, then we weren't going to get the full person out of it. So we embraced each other's individual personalities, let everyone be themselves, but came together as a team to have the same purpose, same focus. We had a foundation already set in place that Anson Doran set in the very beginning um, and his mentality was you play for each other you play for the bigger part of the of, of the team than yourself so we had all of that set in place and then we he gave us the, the 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 go to just play and when you have people that are different personalities but have the same mentality and want to be the best and then you give them the freedom to go out there and play it's pretty powerful and uh and we laugh a lot about uh our team because you know, we'll make comments like, Oh, that's just Brandy and Oh, that's Jules, <laughs> you know, and no one will really understand that but we understand that. You know, Brandy's always like just cutting it, very close to coming on time kind to of practice but you get there. <laughs> you know, or Jules is making a joke on someone. So, you know, you embrace it and you you know who who they are because you know once they set out step out on the field they're gonna play for you. And so, that's what you that's what's building, you know, your powerhouse team, you know, you're adding all these different elements of you know, chemistry, ethos, all that stuff has to come together um, and have great leadership to to help your team be successful.
1: So one of the things that you mentioned a moment ago was Coach Dorrance, and you Mm -hmm. both talk about him at length in the book, because he truly was a remarkable influence on everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to me about the difference between the role of the coach and the role of the captain. Yeah, um, you know,
2: that's interesting, because there, there's, similar i think it's just a uh, the coach is setting the tone for the for what they want they expect of the players and the cap and the captain's trying to reiterate that message but being the not being the coach is hard <laughs> to, you know they're um they're just the ones that are closer to connection to the players and and the coach obviously you know whether the captain's picked by the players or the coach uh, is picking the captains it's usually probably the same person because I think the coach can see what the players need. Uh, so the coach sets the tone. He sets up a foundation. He, he, he directs us and, you know, aligning the team in the right direction and setting our goals for us. And then you bring in the leadership and the leaders set the tone where the players can connect to. And the leaders are someone you can trust that are, you know, doing what they are asking of you. And one of the great uh, captains we had on the team was Carla Overbeck and she's in the book. And, why she was so great is she had a way of connecting with every single player. And and you'll read more about it in the book, Mm -hmm. um, but she talked about being a servant leader. She talked about, you know, if I'm going to walk onto, going to the field and there's a bag of balls, I'm not going to walk by it. I'm going to pick them up. You know, I'm not any better because I'm the captain than someone else. So it was always just serving each other. And then she had a way of communicating with us on the field. If you were having a really bad game, it wasn't like, Christine Lily, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know? It was more like, Christine Lily, we need you. And then immediately you're like, oh, Carla needs me. Okay, so let me snap out of this.
1: So she knew how to was, inspire you.
2: Oh, it was just in- incredible. Total inspiration and total making you snap out and realize, hold on. Let me get out of myself for a second and remember the team needs me.
1: There was a section in the book that talked about a way that she would sit next to different people to eat and she'd sit on the bus or the plane or the train next to different Mm -hmm. people so she's always developing relationships particularly Mm -hmm. with the newer players. Lynette, how much is this captain role kind of like your direct manager in an organization? How do these have a parallel there?
0: Yeah, I I think it does have a parallel. One of the You know, you've got your coach who is really your formal leader, right, as we Mm -hmm. call it, that leader with authority, and you've got your captain who has a certain level of formal authority, but they're also, you know, that they have a lot of what I would call referent power, you know, if we were looking Mm -hmm. in in business terms, that they have power because of the respect that others hold for them, right? Um, You could have a captain that had no power at all because people didn't respect the way they... Treated others the way they behave. They didn't respect their decisions. And so, in that role, they have to have the respect of those who they are working with. So, similarly, a direct manager in an organization may also have to build those relationships and develop that um, that referent power, that level of power where people respect their decisions. Um, otherwise, their actions really are going to be null and void, void in many ways.
1: It, as you describe that, it doesn't surprise me how many, especially women CEOs, have backgrounds in sports. Mm. And that this sounds like this is one of the first places where women get an opportunity to rise into leadership roles where they have to leave with, as you said, the referent authority, not just the the authority that comes with their position. Right. And so in the sports context, Christine, you you Mm -hmm. were on this team for a really long time. You've inhabited a lot of different roles. Um, How did you feel about the process of emerging into leadership roles over time?
2: You know, I think we all, as in sports, we all start as the, the rookie <laughs> <laughs> where you soak everything in. You, you take it all in and you, you listen a lot. And if you you know par- parallel that to the business world, you know that's the that's the green you know the green green entering <laughs> business world. You know they're like oh my gosh I got, I'll do this I'll do that. You want me to get coffee? I'll get coffee for you. You know and that's kind of what the rookie role is. You know you're just doing everything and soaking it all in, and you learn and then you start to develop your your own individual strengths and 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 ways um, on the field and also leadership. And then you become the veteran, um, and then also the gray, <laughs> the green and gray. You get gray. Um, and you, and then you take what all you've learned through your rookie years and, and what people you've taken from other people and then the strengths you've built, and you try to implement that to the next generation coming through. And I think that's one of the hardest things as a rookie player coming to be a veteran and maybe coming into a captain because in your mindset, you've had so many great captains before you. So I had Carla Overbeck, Julie Fowdy, and uh, April Heinrichs all these wonderful captains. And then I step into a captain role and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, well, they did it this way. They did it that way. And you sometimes catch into that flux of, oh, my gosh, do I have to find my niche? And you eventually do find your niche. You take, you know, obviously with the strength. And my strength as a captain was leading by example. Mm-hmm. So everything I was asking of my team, I made sure I did and did even better. You know, I was always the fittest player on the field. So fitness was something where I could really motivate and help my team and earn their respect. Um, so you find the strengths that work for you and then, um, and then lead the best way you can. And I think the leaders that I've worked with that have been so uh, successful is that they've led, but they have also have a group underneath them of seven or eight people that are sending the same message.
1: So you you, know. you mentioned two important things being a servant leader and leading by example mm-hmm. and particularly pointed out the importance of fitness and in the book one of the things I really appreciated that I hadn't thought about quite that way before I had almost taken it for granted the fundamental prerequisite of showing up the, on the field superbly fit before training even mm-hmm. began Lynette, talk to me about what the business version of this is. How does, how does that play out in the workplace? What's, where, what are the ways that we can prepare ourselves so we show up for work fit and ready to go?
0: Yeah, so I think there is um, a lot of preparation in advance as far as developing your competency in your field mm-hmm. and um, competency in your job. So, you know, sometimes in business, we put people into jobs and ask them to perform without that practice. And, um, and we need to be practicing our craft of what it is we do as well as, um, as simply stepping out and trying to perform. Um, and sometimes that takes repetition. It takes time. It takes training. And it takes effort. And sometimes it takes a lot of self-motivation, um, right? And those people who have that self-drive are going to work harder to um, develop their competency and um, so that they ultimately can perform and be that kind of inspiration and role model to others. You know, when you talk to um, various people, we did interviews for this book, and um, every single one would say, you know, Christine led by example. um, Christine was always, you know, the hardest worker, the fittest person, and and she set that bar high, right? She was a pace setter. And and, and, in team, if you read much team research, they talk about pace setters on teams, and those pace setters um, set the bar and expect and um, hold others accountable to rise up to that bar um, versus, you know, kind of releasing and letting go of some of their own um, self-accountability and and coming down. So they push others to improve and get better. Um, But that often has to come through training and hard work. And sometimes in some organizations, you've got to seek that out yourself and be motivated to drive drive towards that and then bring others and bring your team along with if you are going to be that um, servant leader and that leader by example. So
1: it sounds like some of it is about perspective and attitude and other parts of it are showing up, um, could I say, well rested, appropriately dressed for work with your homework done, having prepared for the meetings.
0: Absolutely. There is some self care in there and um, professionalism and, um, and and being ready for work, being ready and um, your mind is active and
1: And prepared. And you're ready to contribute to the team's success by becoming part of the team and not delaying it because you haven't prepared. That's right. It, this is all, I love these these different analogies. Um, we need to take a short break, but stay with us. We're going to talk more with Christine Lilly and Lynette Gillis about Powerhouse, 13 teamwork tactics that build excellence and unrivaled success in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. While we're on break, if you want to give us a call, you can reach Patty at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guests today are Christine Lilly, retired U.S. Women's National Soccer Star, and Dr. Lynette Gillis, the Associate Provost at Concordia University, where she's taught strategy, leadership, management, and ethics. They're the co-authors of a new book called Powerhouse, 13 Teamwork Tactics that Build Excellence and Unrivaled Success. Before the break, we were learning about how the same values that shape a successful team on the field can actually apply to a successful team on the workplace. So with that, welcome back, Lynette, Christine. We're so glad you're here. Nice to be here. Thank Thank you for having us. So Lynette, I want to start off with a question for you. Um, When we think about a workplace context um, and about the relationship between the team and the individuals, you know, employers often want a whole room of stars, people who are going to make the big sales, bring home the numbers. um, Yet at the same time, it seems like If you have a whole team where everybody's the same, the team's not really going to work well. Talk to me about the difference of shaping a team and the role of the individuals on the team.
0: Um, So when you build a team, team members are going to have different roles. Some will be those stars that are in front of people that are leading the group and others will have uh, more of a backseat sort of role, a quieter role, but certainly a role that is nonetheless important. And an individual can be a strong contributor in that role, right? It doesn't have to be the, the one in front of the team or um, the, in share, he's taking that limelight, right? Mm-hmm. And so individual contributors, you want each individual to be strong in their role, and strong in their skill set. And some of those members will want to move up to higher levels to receive promotions. And, and some are content with what they're doing, but are still high performers. The, the leader of that team then is, their role is to manage that set of expectations. And the, the, um, the culture of the team that says each member of this team is valued. And regardless of what their role is, we're going to appreciate and value each member of this team as individuals and as a collection, right? And recognizing that the team functions well when we have that collection of people. And then setting accountability for each person on the team. Mm-hmm. And that accountability standard may be a little bit different for each contributor, but, but still maintaining a high level of accountability to the individual's role, and to the contribution to the team.
1: So, Christine, how does this play out emotionally on the field? What's it like to have the pressure of being the one who's expected to score and be in the limelight and being in roles where your job is to enable others to score?
2: Right. You know, I think that's that's one of the things that makes teams so strong that are successful is, is each each player embracing their role. And I mean – Embracing, I mean, really embracing because it's difficult. There was one example on our team. Uh, one of my teammates and friends used to be a starter. And then she did, lost the starting position and then now she was coming off the bench. And it was one of those times where you're thinking, as the person happening to you, are like, oh, man, this stinks. You know, you're very negative because you're, you're not getting what you want. But immediately you're like, okay, well, if I want to be on the team and I want to contribute to the success, I need to embrace my new role. And that's what I mean by embracing. And it's not easy. And everyone that's not on the field wants to be on the field. And then both the great part of what, what our team felt in 1999 was everyone on the field think, let the people that weren't playing much how important they were to them and how important they were to the team. And that's the stuff that, that helped us be successful because it's not easy not being on the field.
1: You know, no. we, had,
2: we had a couple players in 1999 that never stepped one one minute in the game.
1: That must have been heartbreaking for them.
2: It was. But you know what? They were the first ones at practice that were pushing us and cheering us on because if they weren't pushing us, we weren't going to get better. And then we as a team wouldn't succeed. So it is hard. But we all had to have a role. And it's extremely important to embrace that role and know that it matters.
1: And so they were an important part of the team, even if they weren't on the field.
2: Oh my goodness, most definitely. And even I mean, we'll go to extend to our you know, our staff. I mean, it's just about the players, our coaching staff, our massage people, our manager that, you know, organize all our travel. All those people played an important role in the success of our team. So that's where I think you have to remind yourself when you're in a role that's a little bit more glamorous per se, and remind yourself that you need to reach out and let those people know how important they are.
1: And celebrate them. Exactly. So it also sounds like In this context where you've got really, really um, devoted players, people who are committed to winning, who want to be the best that they can possibly be individually and collectively, that's powerful, but that's also a lot of emotion to manage. And Mm -hmm. it taps into ego and pride and these other things that our regular humans like us wrestle with every day. How in the team context do you guys... Do you ladies learn to handle and navigate all those emotions that are at play with each other?
2: Well, I think, you know, you it's a constant, you know, process. But I think what helps it start off is your foundation from the very beginning. Um, If you know the foundation of our team was never about one person, it was always about the team, about playing for each other, then you have that set in stone. So when you start to veer off, it's not like someone is being a little bit more self-centered you can't be like hey what's wrong with you you're like hey what's what's you know what's our foundation here what's our goal and then it brings them back to life so you ha- if you have that set down that that helps extremely and then it's a constant process and that's building the team chemistry and trust clarifying roles trusting each other and the other one that's so important is being accountable so a lot of times we just want to push off well oh, i didn't make the bad pass, so it wasn't my fault <laughs> <laughs> she did it right she did not me like siblings would do, but in this sense of a team that's, you know, flowing together, coming together, being a powerhouse team, they're accepting their responsibility, you know, and when we ha- used to have meetings with Tony Chico, with our, our other coach of the U.S. Women's National Team, and we used to have meetings, and he used to say, you know, we'd go over the pluses and then the negatives, and there would be like three or four players that like, hey, well, that one play when I, you know, passed the ball back, that was my fault, and when you have that kind of um, commitment, some people recognizing their faults in the field and having that comfort in that team meeting to be able to say that there's a lot of trust.
1: That's and really that's interesting. What, it's another yeah. dimension of accountability that's mm-hmm. not just other people will judge you, but that you're willing to take responsibility for yourself. Correct. So, Lynette, in the workplace where... We do, our work is not always as visible as a soccer team's. We don't have a million eyes on us watching it all unfold within a tidy field in front of us and lots of television cameras with replays. Um, <laughs> how do we um, create the kind of visibility into our successes and our weaknesses um, and support that kind of brave humility? You know,
0: I think in... Um business teams we you know in the united states we are an individualistic culture and we strive to um, progress we may not have cameras watching us but we have our bosses our leaders our managers and <laughs> don't we we <we're laughs> do, right we're striving for that next most of us those high performers are striving for that next promotion you know how do i get ahead how do i improve my value right and And we can look at other sports teams who haven't been successful, like the women's national team, and and ask the question, they've got all this great talent, why aren't they winning, right? And in organizations, we can look at our own teams and say, we've got all this great talent, why aren't we successful? What is wrong with this picture? And often it's because of this individualistic sort of approach to doing our work. So, you know, how do we build that into the team that when we work as a team, we move farther along and we actually end up, Better off than we would have has had we all worked individually for our own self-interest, and and that's what's beautiful about this women's national team is that they were striving and knew that together they could do more than they could individually, and a leader, a manager has to really communicate that, and um, and then be willing to recognize teams. You know, I, as an educator with students, you know, when we do group work. Mm-hmm. They. They hate teams, right? They ask the questions of, <laughs> do I have to have a group grade? Um, do I have to be assigned to a team, right? In businesses, we do the same thing. Um, can't you recognize my own individual performance? You know, I, I don't want to be dependent on what my coworker does. I don't want to be accountable to that. And can I choose who I want to work with? And that's not
1: the real world. The yeah, real in real world life, is, that doesn't happen. It mm-hmm.
0: doesn't happen. We're assigned to teams, and, and those groups and those teams, when they're assigned a project, they're going to succeed or fail as a group. And um, and so we have to one be able to communicate with them that that this group has to function well, and then the leader has to build in that culture. They have to set expectations and accountability and all those things we've already talked about. You know, one of the things about this book that I love is that you know oftentimes, and it's with students with organizations, we tell them we want you to be a high-performing team, but we don't tell them what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And and in this book, using the U.S. Women's National Team as sort of this. Thematic, um, you know, exemplar to look to. We can point to a team and say, this was a team that was high performing, and these are the reasons why. And we hope that in reading it, then you know, leaders, managers, team members, individual contributors can glean something from it and how they help uh, move from this individualistic sort of approach to work to a team. A high functioning
1: team approach. So you, you really can um use another team as a model for what a successful team looks like, even though their context and their goals can be entirely different. That's right. Uh-huh. I happen to be talking with Christine Lilly and Dr. Lynette Gillis, co authors of a new book called Powerhouse. 13 Teamwork Tactics That Build Excellence and Unrivaled Success. Um, This is, of course, Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. If you want to join in the conversation and talk to us about what you learned from sports and how it plays out every day in the workplace, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-942-7866. We'd really love to hear your voice, so give us a ring. So as you're talking, Lynette, about This dynamic of how you create these high-functioning teams and that you set standards for them. Um, It raises a question for me about what happens as the individuals on a team change and what the dynamic was that enabled the women's national soccer team to stay that powerhouse team while people came on and left.
0: So I, I'll tell you my thoughts on that and let Christine add to it. Uh, in our book, we have one chapter where we talk about this green and gray concept that Christine mentioned earlier, that you're, you have your new, your young, your, your fresh players, and you have your veterans. And um, they were able, as a team, to maintain that culture and ethos of the team as players moved in and out, right? The U.S. national team, as you mentioned, is the winning most team in the history of United States sports. And that happened over a long period of time, not just one year, which means there are players that have moved in and out, right? Uh, But the culture of the team has maintained. They've maintained that attitude for winning, that winning mentality, that um, desire to um, achieve the best, to be your best, that um, sense of playing for the other and playing for each other, and, um, and then also a sense of purpose in, um, in having that platform for women's sports and for girls and for youth of, of our society, right? And, and similarly in organizations, right, we're going to have people move in and out as we hire, as people retire, as people leave and move on to other opportunities. Uh, we will have transition within our teams. So setting a culture is really important within the team and within the organization. That's where I go back to those values that I mentioned earlier, having those sense of values both organizationally and then within your team, kind of the rules for engagement. This is how we behave as a team. And then as you bring in new players, it's that hiring for, for fit, with, fit with this is the way we behave. This is the way we're going to um, communicate with each other and interact with each other. These are the expectations we have for each other. And then that honest feedback that um, that people need that is given with both compassion and transparency.
1: So as Christine said, those gray players, the ones who are more mature on the top, become the carriers of those cultural norms and the values that Absolutely. allow the culture to continue. Christine, how did this play out in real life? Did you see examples of it that you thought really helped, you know, pass the baton and, and carry those values from the existing team to its newer members?
2: Yes, I mean, there was definitely, uh, there was constant, I think it was a constant process. I think with the U.S. Women's National Team, we had a core of us that were on the team for about 17 years. But there was always fluctuating players. You know, there was always new players coming in. And when we had camps, I mean, it wasn't just the 20, we had maybe 30 kids in camp. So there was constant new, new blood coming in. So you, there was constantly showing what it means to be on this team, whether mm-hmm. it's acting the way you act professionally, getting ready, getting there. Um, how you train, how you speak, um, you know, no, no one's talking badly about a teammate, you know, you're all respecting what each other's doing. And I think the biggest, uh, the, the biggest challenge, is we all were fighting for our spots on the team.
1: Right, you're competing. So, uh, so weren't you fundamentally competing with each other to some degree?
2: Constantly, constantly. So you're competing against players that you also are hoping will make the team but if you didn't compete you were going to make the team. So it was a constant a constant challenge but I think that's what made that's what made our team so successful because it's so competitive. And then you embrace uh the new generations coming in and in 2004 that is when um Julie Fowdy, Mia Hamm and Joy fawcett three, you know, members of the team that had been together for 17 years were retiring and Carlo i retired a, year, uh, a couple of years before that and Michelle Akers from the very beginning retired. I think four years before that. So that was a big adjustment. And then Brandy Chastain wasn't on the the team. So I was one of the lone players from the first 91 team. And plus there was maybe another player from 99, Christy Rampone. So we started to dwindle that majority. And then new young players are coming in with a new green, you know, (laughs) smile on their face, like, here we go. I'm going to take over the world. Um, And there was a little bit of, you know, trying to show them what it means to be here. And definitely the leadership we passed down through, you know, Abby Womack was the next generation to come through, and then obviously passing that to Alex Morgan. So you continue to pass the competitive fire of what it means to be here and the culture that we we had set from the start. So it is a process, and you hope that the new generation coming in is embracing um, what you have set um, the foundation at.
1: So it sounds like one of the things that you were – was happening when you get a little – when you think of it big picture is that – kids were coming Mm -hmm. onto the team. They were young women. And that um, some of the players were on the team long enough that you were really mature women, fully grown Mm -hmm. ups. By the time your arc on the team was almost done. Um, Mm -hmm. Was there anything in particular that wasn't just about their newness, but about their youth, that you learned to be sensitive to or work with or work around in trying to help integrate them into the team?
2: Well, I think, you know, the veteran gray players we all were a new player at one point so we all knew what it felt like to be on the team we knew how scary it was we knew how nerve-wracking it was we knew how lonely it could be because um, a lot of players knew each other um but in the same aspect you also have to let them experience that you know it's not like you're just isolating them on purpose but you're letting them go through some things and knowing that training's gonna be hard and then afterwards you know hey good job today just a couple words. I remember being a young player, and I would just hear, "Hey, little, good job today." And I was like, "Oh, really?
1: You think I did good?" <laughs> and how
2: much, and how much that meant to me. And and the person that told me that probably didn't even realize the impact. But and the praise
1: I, junkies in us are hungry for that.
2: Oh, yeah. well, you want the you want to earn the respect of your teammates. Absolutely. And and that's that's what it's about. So you gotta you gotta bring them along a bit, but you also have to let them experience what it's like to be a young player to really embrace. Um, that part of it uh, because it's not easy and you don't want to make it easy because then you're not serving them a good purpose. You know, you're not really showing them what it's about.
1: So one of the things that you just mentioned was the value of um, that positive word, that kind Mm -hmm. message. And in the book you also shared a few really amazing stories about the way that Coach Dorrance gave Mm -hmm. feedback. Um, Talk to me about his personalized letters that he gave out before a game.
2: Yeah, you know I mean I'm I'm aging myself when I'm thinking I don't even know how many years I've been out of college. But um he he used to write letters to the seniors and I from my recollection from back in the day, this I mean this is a while ago, I can remember him reading those letters to the team and the seniors the seniors would step out of the locker room. So he would talk about each senior ind- individually to the team, in essence of showing the team that's in the room, why you are playing this game. You're playing for all those seniors that are sitting out there because they've worked the three years prior to create what you have. And when I, when the seniors would come back in the room, I would look around to some of the teammates, and some of the teammates would be in tears. I'm like, what's going on in here? <laughs> <laughs> we got a game to play. But Anson, what he did with that, Um, was showing his appreciation of us and it wasn't not just the soccer it was also the other stuff we did off the field that impacted us as human beings but showed us appreciation that that he had of us and then sharing that with the team and and really the play for each other I've got your back, I'll carry you today was all those kind of mentalities and feelings we had and when we stepped on that field could you imagine having all those emotions and wanting to be like all right who what team are we going to tear apart here
1: <laughs> right and to show um how much of building that team camaraderie mm-hmm. um happened off the field Yes. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Christine Lilly and Dr. Lynette Gillis, co-authors of the new book, Powerhouse: Thirteen Teamwork Tactics That Build Excellence and Unrivaled Success. I'm Laura Zarrow, and we're delighted that you're here, here with us today. Um, and Christine and Lynette, this idea of how we buoy each other, I find. Um, important and intoxicating i try and do it with my team on a regular basis Mm -hmm. i also have a very small team so lynette when we're in workplaces um we can't always write love notes and read them the night before a big event at work (laughs) what are some ways that we can create parallels or use kind of existing systems within a workplace um to accomplish the same things
0: you know, I don't think it has to be complicated. Um, the research would tell us that people are motivated by opportunities to contribute. They're motivated by recognition. They're motivated by signs of appreciation. And um, those are really what often we call satisfiers in our jobs, right? Things that help us want to do more, mm-hmm. as opposed to dissatisfiers, which are things that, if they're not present, we're unhappy, right? And those are things like salary continues to come up <laughs> right. there. But um, so I, I don't think it has to be complicated. Even the scenario that Christine described to you, it is, it is simple words of affirmation and recognition. Every individual, we want to be recognized as a team, but we also want to be known individually. We want to feel known mm-hmm. and, and feel appreciated for our individual uniquenesses and contributions to the team. So whether that's the leader, the manager, your um, peers, your coworkers, your um, friendship type of relationships, it is those words of affirmation, that opportunity to say, I want you on my team. Can you help me with this? I believe you have the skills to do this. Those are simple ways. Um, certainly there's more formal ways that organizations can um, recognize people, whether that's you know, formally um, announcing something to the team, recognizing teams within the organization more publicly, and rewarding teams with greater opportunity when they are successful at something. Uh, there's, there's those types of opportunities as well, but certainly I don't think it has to be that complicated as long as it recognizes both individuality and contribution and appreciation while also uh, recognizing the team's
1: success as well. One of the things I love that you just shared, because it's so essential to creating an inclusive workplace, is to feel seen for who you are and valued for who you are and to have that reflected back at you. That's right. So, Christine, one of the things, talking about opportunities to improve and seeing who you are and celebrating some of it, Um, I'd like Mm -hmm. to to see if you could share one last story with us because I thought it was amazingly instructive about a time when you scored a crafty goal and you were actually (laughs) pulled out of the game.
2: Yes. You know, this was uh, when I was, uh, I would say, a sophomore, junior in college. I don't know exactly, but we were we were playing in a spring tournament. So we have a certain amount of spring games you could play uh, our seasons in the fall. So we were playing a spring tournament in, at William and Mary. And uh, it's a seven aside side game, which is such a fun game to play. If you're a soccer fans. you touch the ball a lot. There's always lots of chances to score. And I remember I was playing in, I got the ball and I had a breakaway on the goalkeeper. So it was just me and the goalie and the goalie came out, but stayed up. So I took a shot and put it low. And, um, I was so excited, you know, going back to the team. I was high flying, like, good job, man. Way to go. And then immediately, I my name, I hear my name getting subbed out. And I'm thinking in my head, like, what? Why am I getting subbed out? I just did something good. <laughs> right. So I get off to the side, and Anson's like, no, come on over here. And he walks me over to the side. And he goes, Did you see what you just did? I'm like, Yeah, I scored a goal. You know, I'm a young kid. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's so obvious. Come on now. And he goes, No, it's, it's how you did it. And he went over, like, goalie's up, you shoot low. If the goalie goes down, you shoot high. And I was like, okay, great. And, you know, I'm an 18-, 19-year-old kid. I'm like, great, thanks, Coach. But that has stuck in my head for, I mean, we don't even need to go on how old I am right now, <laughs> for 30-plus years, you know. And those are those are moments that uh, you remember. And usually it's like, oh, my coach yelled at me. But this one was was catching me doing something great. And I've taken that into my coaching and trying to do that when I'm teaching the young kids because it was such a big impact on, on, my, on me and my uh, life.
1: Yeah, and it's also an amazing example of the importance of recognizing not just when somebody does something wrong, but when somebody does something well, and mm-hmm. pointing it out and praising it with specificity so that they can mm-hmm. repeat it. Right. It's actually a potent, a potent um, coaching tactic that you can apply in your life with your kids or with your colleagues <laughs> or your employees. Um, we're going to run out of time shortly. So um, I have a question. If people want to learn more about the work that you are doing, Lynette, um, where can they find out, find you and more about where you're working and what you're doing?
0: Um, so I am on Concordia.edu. I'm an associate provost there, so you can find me there. Or um, at JohnGillisJr.com, which is a website between my husband and I, who
2: also co-authored the book with us.
1: So I can be found there. Fantastic. And Christine, how about you? Where can people find out more about you or get in touch if they want to follow you?
2: Right. Uh, Well, you can go to christinelily13.com, my website, and they'll have information there. And also, they can email me at christinelilysa, S as in Sam, A, at gmail.com for any questions or thoughts or bookings or anything
1: like that fantastic well thank you both of us for joining us today for your work and helping inspire all of us to follow in the footsteps of that amazing soccer team Um, I'm Laura Zarrow and this is Women at Work here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132 thanks so much for listening
2: When there's nothing left to hurt inside and we'll shine Yes, will shine we will shine we will
0: shine for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.